0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
1: This is Troy and Elise, and you are listening to a Revived Thoughts and Martyrs and Missionaries crossover episode where we are going to be doing a what we sometimes call in Revived Thoughts a revived conversation. We're gonna have a, having a discussion about how I, I think the only way to really say is how not to teach church history, but really the goal is we have both noticed through some different things uh, some problems in teaching church history, and I think the best way to maybe kind of open this up is to use a very recent example.
0: All right, so I'm taking these classes to finish up um, one of my degree, my degree, and um, I I'm taking this church history class, and there's a specific um, book we're supposed to do a a book report on, and it's called Turning Points by Mark A. Knoll, and he's kind of famous in the the church history, Christian history um, kind of circuit.
1: Yeah, when I posted an, a recently on Twitter and I asked our followers, you know, do you know this book and what do you know about it? And uh, so we had several commenters go, oh, I had to read that book in my church history class. I love that book. And if you look at this book on Amazon, it's very highly rated out of, I think, four to 500 reviews. It's got a 4.8. So you would think then that this is going to be a book that would really blow your socks off for church history.
0: And it does not, unless you are maybe a Catholic, because it's very, I actually had to look up while I was reading it. I was like, is this guy, is this guy a Catholic? I'm. I was just blown away because he was really, praising um, everything that the the Catholic Church did, um, and then actually neg- negatizing. Is that a word? I don't know. Um, but he was being very negative about the Protestant movement, the Reformation. He didn't even mention the Great Awakening. He didn't mention Jonathan Edwards. He skipped over the entire uh, Protestant missions movement. And it was just...
1: And this is a book called Turning Points. The idea is the big moments in church history. Yes. So it's hard to imagine discussing the big movements of church history, but skipping over the great awakening and the great century of missions, especially because you mentioned some other movements like the right. Pietists <laughs> that he definitely allotted a lot of time to. And
0: the Counter-Reformation as well.
1: And so we. this is... And the reason I think this is a good example to open with is because right now, church history is not being taught correctly. I, I just think I can say that across the board in many places, church history is not being taught correctly. This book is one example, just kind of the recent, uh, the most recent example that we ran into where we thought, yet again, here we see a person is signing up for church history class. I think the truth is, though, at least if you didn't run a church history podcast, if this wasn't a world you were living in, would you have thought that this was a really good study on church history?
0: It's possible. I think I, I think I probably would. I mean, he writes very authorita- authoritatively.
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the big problems is that so often people are being given this almost completely wrong version of church history. They're being told this is church history, and then that's all they have. I have an example of myself. I was at seminary a couple of years back. I was also in a church history class, but I was also running these church history podcasts on the side. And I was very excited for this class. It was like, like it was the last class I had to take actually in the school. And I was like, ah, I said the best and easiest class for last. And I couldn't help but notice that my professor was always putting down great people. He was putting down Charles Spurgeon. He was putting down Jonathan Edwards, he was really digging into the flaws of Martin Luther or John Calvin. And and I want you to know, I don't think that's wrong. You can teach the bad sides, but he was glossing over anything good they added. He, he was completely focused on the negative and almost completely underwhelmed by anything positive that they did, if they were good people. But if they were people that would be considered negative, for example, Voltaire, who is an atheist philosopher caused undue harm uh, in France, he had an hour of all the positive things and only a little bit on the negative. And it was kind of like a sly wink. Like, yeah, Voltaire was an atheist philosopher, but look at how smart he was and how clever he was. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't go to a a theologically liberal seminary. I went to a place that many consider to be very conservative theologically, and theologically it probably is. But yet this history professor was ripping Uh, church history up and down. And I'll never forget that the very last class, three hours he just spent negatively attacking the church today with nothing positive to say. And I thought to myself, if I got a seminary education here and I didn't, and church history wasn't a strong suit of mine, I would think that this was a correct course on church history. And I would come out of this class not knowing church history hardly at all. In fact, I would have a very negative, just like this book that you had to read, Elise, I would have a very negative impression of church history. And I think that, This really explains one of the major problems we have today, which is a lot of people do have a very negative impression of church history. When you say the words church history, people's eyes almost immediately gloss over.
0: Mm. I think there's actually, it's a kind of a twofold issue because you have this very negative way of interpreting church history and then uh, the stories of church history. And then you also have this Overemphasis on the councils and the early, like the very early theological debates. Obviously, those are important, very important. I'm not minimizing that, but when you're doing a church history course, you should be covering the history, not the theology of uh, the early church.
1: Yeah, it, that is another big problem. I think it stems just. Uh, look, I got to be honest. If I, I this is totally speculation. But when i'm in seminary i compare my seminary and my bible college experience like look at elise's experience and i just can't help but notice is it that the professors teaching church history really want to be theology professors but they end up in the church history department so they major on theology i mean i i don't know that's the vibe i get because they don't seem that interested in the stories of the church they seem almost exclusively interested in the historical theology but that's not the best way to teach church history no i'm not saying There's no historical theology or merit to it. But that is the secondary level of what church history is. Church history is a great movement of God's people through 2,000 years, living out what God has called us to live out. And when you get focused on, when you get distracted by the theology, that might appeal to the theologian uh, people that are in your audience, but everyone else is getting lost. I'm sorry, but the average person is not that interested in a lot of these councils. It's not to say it's not important, but I think what has happened is too often on our church history courses, church history is submissive to the theology department that you're only using church history to build and prove your theological cases, not to actually study the church history and learn from it itself. You can learn theology from studying church history, but church history is not a tool to teach your specific theological branch and denomination. It is in itself its own study.
0: I would agree with that because I think you can obviously teach church history, and church history has many different uh, people that were in it. I mean, for the first up until the 1517, 15, the church was, uh, we would consider it to be Catholic, or at least that's kind of the idea is like everybody before 1517 would consider themselves to be Catholic. Now that's the difference. What does that mean exactly? Does it actually mean the Western Catholic Church was united? That's another one of these these myths is like the Catholic Church was united until 1517, which is completely false. And this is actually mentioned um, in this book, and I'm going to quote a little bit here. He says, and he's talking about the Protestant Reformation, and he's he's kind of slammed on it the whole way through. And he says, the rise of Protestantism also symbolizes the end of the unified Western church and opening for replacing loyalty to the universal church with loyalty to nations and a stimulus to forms of thought rejecting the guidance of any church. And that is something you will hear Catholics say. That's one of their big big points against Protestantism. They're like, you guys are splintered into so many movements. But yet the idea that the Catholic church is united all before this time is completely
1: false. And it's a real threat too, because you may be going, okay, well, there's a bad book or some of the church history courses haven't been taught well, but we you meet a lot of Protestants who convert to Catholicism later in life and they will almost always say, I, without a doubt, you can, you can predict it to a T, I mm-hmm. promise you. One of They will at some point say, to study church history is to cease being Protestant. Mm-hmm. It's a quote from a man named John Henry Newman in the 1800s. And if I could go back in time and eliminate one quote from history, <laughs> that might be on my top contenders list because it's so obnoxious. Absolutely not. I've been running Church History Podcast for five years. it's right here for three or four years. We are not becoming Catholic anytime soon at all, ever. This isn't a reveal party? Yeah, no, (laughs) we're not doing that because Catholicism, in fact, the more you teach church history, I feel like in my experience, the further removed from Catholicism I have certainly become. But the problem is when we as the church don't teach it correctly, or as many churches don't even teach it at all, You leave this wide open door for Catholicism or any other group, Mormons, any other group, to now create a new history. People need history. There's a reason why for a long time, I believe it was the communists who used to say, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. One of the first departments that when communists or progressives begin to infect an institution, one of the first places they go, especially if it's a seminary, they don't go for the theological departments. They don't start there. They start in in the history departments because people are not watching them as carefully. And they know that if they can change your story of how you got to be where you are, they can change where you're going. Anytime communists or Maoists took over a country, they would immediately replace all the old history with new stories that emulate the models they want you to emulate. There's a reason that's happening around the world today in many of the Western countries. It's not an accident, it's intentional. Rewriting history changes things. And let's be honest, the average Christian in the pew today, if they were to have the history of the church rewritten and handed to them, most of them wouldn't even know. If you were to suddenly start saying these things, they wouldn't even have a clue. One of the big problems with teaching church history today is that the church has just relegated that to someone else's job. They're either handing it to secular universities, they don't know it, they're not even trying. The average church has zero church history week to week. And where are you expecting your parishioners, your people to learn it from? You're not expecting them to learn it at all, and you think that's going to be okay. It's not though. They need to know the story of the church and where they came from. And they if they don't get that from you, they will start to learn it from someone else. And that someone else very likely will have an agenda to change the shape and direction and the course of the church. We have to start doing it. So the first problem that we could start saying with how not to teach church history is by not teaching it. And many, many churches, I think, are currently guilty of this, where they just have completely not absorbed or even attempted to teach church history even at all.
0: Agreed. I think that... As I've done Martyrs and Missionaries, I, I've always liked history. Obviously, you don't, you don't start a podcast if you don't write about history. But I think that one of the things that actually encouraged me to start uh, doing Martyrs and Missionaries is not the theology, not the, um, the different historical events. I mean, sometimes that's really interesting, these different missionaries who go into these uh, different, like, you know, the Taiping Rebellion and things like that. That obviously makes a really good story but it's actually the the personal stories of how these people lived out their Christian faith um, and the impact that they had on society. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And that's actually one of the things that we uh, don't emphasize when we're, when we're covering uh, history is all the things that are happening around you at the same time. So we like to kind of pluck somebody from a timeline and be like, this is everything they did, uh, kind of. And then we just kind of, we don't, look around to see like oh okay so this was this was happening at this point in time and this was happening and this impacted this person and that's actually one of the most cool stories about history and then you have oh this person knew this person and so they were affected by this person and when you don't teach the stories of church history and you just focus on the theologies or um, or you're trying to prove a narrative you are you're doing a huge disservice um, and I think that's actually one of the things when you're teaching a history course um, is you want your students to feel engaged. You want them to be, okay, this is the story of this person. This is why it matters, not, well, you know, this was the, a heresy that was happening about this time, which can be important, but sometimes we focus on that and we go, this person lived from this date to this date, and then their impact was this. But we don't actually get to know that person. And I think that is something that's missing from a lot of um, these these different courses. And like Troy said, if you don't know anything about history, you can be led wherever they want you to go. So huge problem.
1: Yeah, I that would be the next thing I think I was going to say. So one of the ways to not teach church history is to just not teach it. Another way to not teach church history is, like Elise said, with just a slideshow with different, you know, I'm picturing like a professor, but you could do this at church. You could mm-hmm. do this in your after Sunday school church classes where you just have a, a face of like an old you know guy and then you just put he lived to this day this day he was important and working through the atonement and he wrote this book and a lot of people liked it and that's it and, mm-hmm. and like, that might sound ridiculous, but that is so often people's experiences with church history. It's or like, history in general. Or history in general. You know, I always make this kind of joke that history is not just this group of people sold purple cloth from these years to this <laughs> year's. But like so many stu- so many people, when they think of church, they think of history class. They think of sixth grade when their teacher was going on. They were trying to stay awake and how they were like, and these people sold traded seashells for copper. And that's just... Yes, it's true. That may have happened. But it's not history class. And if that's your impression of history, you're dying and you don't want to. And that's one of the big problems we have teaching church history. It's one of the big problems our podcasts have is we are up against the word history itself. Our, the world has been so programmed to be anti-history that they imagine their old social studies coach in their public school background just going on and on and on between lacrosse practices and just waiting for the class to end miserably. They're so ingrained into that world view of that's what history is that you're up against it and you have to make it fresh and exciting and interesting to them. If you wouldn't do, you know, an hour-long lecture in church on Sunday and you would add anecdotes and you would add stories and you would make it applicable, you need to do that a little bit with church history too. People are not going to just understand how this modernist controversy in the 200s immediately applies to them today. You have to help them do that. You have to help them see how the first crusade, although very confusing and interesting, applies to them today. You need to make it something that they want to click on and want to listen to or want to go talk to you about. And you need to make these stories real. Uh, Elise said uh, how studying these stories can be encouraging to your faith. Jonathan Edwards says there's two ways to encourage faith by teaching doctrine and precept, teaching theology, or by example, and we always see Revive Thoughts and Myers and Missionaries as worthy examples. There are lots of people podcasting giving you theology, but there's only a handful of people trying to give examples, and yet, week after week our inboxes are full of people saying thank you so much for making these shows thank you so much for doing what you're doing i've been looking for something like this and it was such a balm to my soul yet we can't do it alone like there need to be more churches more ministries more people getting these messages out and if you're a seminary you got to teach it better if you're a church you need to start bringing this up in your your church if you are just a regular guy share it with your family but get out there and be starting to introducing these things in the same way that i think 15 to 20 years ago a lot of churches realized hey we need to start teaching better theology like we need to go back in time you know i think it was about 20 years ago people started studying puritans more they started studying re, uh, a lot of the reform movements started happening but i feel like the whole church in the west realized a lot of their, their theology is shallow we need to have that wake-up call on our history because we are, we are at that point now where we become shallow in it. So, and, we're, and if we do teach it so often, it's just a very shallow surface level, a bunch of names without any real recognition. And this isn't just a problem in church history. As someone who has some experience teaching history courses, even at a high school level, this is becoming a problem across the board everywhere where history has become so shallow to the average person, they can't relate to it anymore. And we've really got to start working on getting it deeper. Now there's another problem as well to dealing with history. And that is what is called the new history movement. And I think they kind of go together. I think as history became shallow and people knew less and less, there is now a new movement to basically reverse teach history where they teach you history the way they want you to see it. This is your critical... Uh, critical theory history. Critical race theory comes from critical theory, which all comes from um, history itself, actually. But this is this new way of teaching history where the bad guys are actually the good guys and the good guys are actually the bad guys. This is where if you've heard... Um, people basically living through today where they suddenly start seeing uh, old presidents that everyone used to like are suddenly really, really evil and bad. And people who were not so good through history were actually not so bad after all. Uh, I, I know a textbook that is being used in high schools right now that, base, that says something to the effect of, uh, China was through was, was full of civil strife until 1948. And that's when it became much more stable. And if you hear that and you don't know that 1948 is the year the communists took over, you might think, oh good, China got some stability. But of course, if you know that that's the year the communists took over, you then realize that this book is saying, China was full of strife until the communists took over and then everything stabilized. Uh, yeah, that's one way to call the cultural revolution and the massacre of millions of people a stabilization, I suppose is one way to say it, but this is a real thing. I can I can show you picture after picture of these of these textbook statements where they are rewriting and reconfiguring history to say something that it no longer says, where they eliminate important parts of history, like the Armenian genocide or the communist revolutions in the world. And they start to paint down the evils of these other countries. And this is happening in our history classes. I mentioned that I had a professor that was doing this, and Elisa's book uh, that, that she had to read, The Turning Points, is doing this as well. But this is happening all across where, oh, actually, you know, missionaries did a lot more harm when they entered those cultures than they actually did. If you knew the real history, uh, you would know that they really hurt a lot. of people.
0: Yes. I will actually say that is a, that is a huge problem today where you'll see a lot of Christians talking about um, the harm of missions movement. And you'll actually, right now we're seeing a, um, I wouldn't say an explosion because nothing's actually happening, uh, but it's all kind of people talking about how we need to be uh, missionaries in our own backyard and these foreign mission movements we should not do those because we're damaging the culture of other uh of other countries and how how then yeah how damaging they were throughout history and how much harm they did and all of these things um but you also don't see an explosion of you know backyard uh ministry either <laughs>
1: but it's easy to say go mission your missionary work is actually at home uh, but also, we're not going to do it at home a yes, lot of times.
0: Yes, but that stems from this idea that all cultures are sacred; that culture is sacred, and that uh, Christianity somehow is harming these cultures. And um, the thing is, Christianity transcends culture and it transforms culture. And This is not to say that a church in China should look identical to a church in the West, but there are there are tenets of faith that they should look uh, they should look the same in, in a lot of different areas. And. That's one of their biggest beefs is that we don't want to bring our Western Christianity to these churches in Asia because that would harm them and endanger them. But what you're actually saying is we don't want to share the gospel with churches abroad because we don't think it's important.
1: Another example I can think of is just rewriting the stories of history. For example, uh, the people themselves, for example, Hudson Taylor, there are many commentarians out there that go "Oh, Hudson Taylor was a tough, he was a mean guy, you know, working for him was like working for a tyrant. He was tough. Well, For starters, his ministry field was extremely difficult. You would have to be very tough to survive there. I'm not denying that he might've had moments where he was pretty tough on people and expected high standards. But on the other side of it too, his people loved him. Hudson Taylor was deeply, deeply beloved by his people. So how do you square that away with saying at the same time he was very tough, right? It must be some balance to it. Another example is a George, oh, did you have one too?
0: Oh, I did. Well, I was going to say about Hudson Taylor, actually in this book that I was reading, uh, the guy says that he was, Hudson wasn't a good uh, missions theorist, which is <laughs> complete garbage because of China's millions and the recruiting efforts that expanded into a North American branch and I believe it was a New Zealand or Australia branch, plus there was Scandinavian countries. So if he was a terrible missions theorist, why was he so successful? That might
1: actually be the perfect I didn't know that in the book. I didn't read the book, Elise read the book. But that might be the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Hudson Taylor wasn't a mission it wasn't a great mission series, but here's some things he did. Hudson Taylor Completely revolutionized missions. He is one of the most successful missionaries of all time, and yet he wasn't a good enough mission theorist. This, this gentleman writing the book apparently knows better how to do missions than Hudson Taylor, and that's such a classic example of what they do. They take a little nitpick, they they put a little chink in the armor. They don't want to tell you these guys are all good. I, I, another example I remember my professor using was Charles Spurgeon was actually he was kind of a a, 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 a rich aristocratic preacher. You know, he wasn't a man of the people. His Church was filled with working class people. He had an orphanage he ran that the orphans sat in the first two rows and he basically was like, I'd rather them be here than everyone else. He was, of course, and his his publication was read, literally one of the most read document. His sermons were one of the most read things throughout the entire world, being bought by people all over the world. They, they would they would sell newspapers with his clippings in them and they loved them. But somehow I'm supposed to believe that only aristocrats liked him. It's just, it, there's, the, the it, it, but if you don't know history, if you are not aware of this stuff, if you're not pre knowledge, you're going to believe these little nitpicks. You know, imagine if, um, think of your favorite, mean, think of famous, important Christians that are meaningful for today. You know, I think of, uh, I'm trying to use an example that I think universally people would agree with. I think most people would say, Martin, jo- Martin Lloyd-Jones, recently mm-hmm. deceased, he's a well-loved guy. And imagine a hundred years from now, I'm teaching about Martin Lloyd-Jones, somebody most people are familiar with. And I say, yeah, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, he didn't really connect with people. But other than that, he was a great minister. And if you're hearing that today, you'd go, whoa, whoa, hey, wait a second. I've, le- I've listened to his sermons. I really enjoy that. Or maybe R.C. Sproul, you know, he, he, was, he could be a bit mean, though. People found him hard to work with. But otherwise, and you'd go, wait a second, that's not true. True, you know that because you know these guys. But the problem is, people don't know these guys of the past, and so you can get away with these little lines that attack and pull back on them. And because people don't know, they're just criticizing lovely people of the faith. And it happens all over the place. Whether it's D.L. Moody, whether it's Charles Spurgeon, whether it's Hudson Ted. there's no one denomination doing this. Arminian or Calvinist, there's. It's across the board. It's an attack on everything we enjoy as a church. What, what, what God is celebrating, His people throughout history, what the great cloud of witnesses that we can point to as stalwarts of our faith and these new history people have been changing them and rewriting them and remodeling new heroes. And the sad part is most of us don't know history well enough to even realize that it's happening. That's the new history movement. Don't do that. When you're teaching church history, stay away from that movement as well. Actually, another example, I, we, we don't get this opportunity to get fresh new books in our community a lot. We live in Indonesia and so oftentimes we don't get it. But I had somebody who is uh, not able to be with this community much longer. He is, is selling some books and I bought a book. It's he
0: like he's dying. He's moving back. Yeah, he's moving back, he's moving
1: back. <laughs> um, but he's, he's moving back to the, to the States and he was, he was selling a book called Crisis of Doubt. And he specifically was like, you're gonna like this book, it's really good. And so I picked it up and opened it. And I love this book, it's so interesting. You may not know much about the 1800s, but if you've ever learned about the 1800s in college somewhere, whether it's literature, whether it's social stuff, you're gonna always hear that the Victorian era of Britain was this era of great doubting where people, every book was about people doubting their faith. Everyone was questioning God's existence. It was this big thing during that time. And that's actually, I remember, as soon as I started reading about it, I was like, oh yeah, I do feel like I remember learning that in college. That was just kind of the accepted byline. The 1800s in Britain, the Victorian era, All the free-thinking, clever people were doubting their faith during this time. And I never even thought about the fact that that doesn't square away with all, with the most popular preachers of all time that lived at the exact same era, like Charles Spurgeon, Talmadge. um, I I mean, there's a huge long list of people, Alexander McLaren. All these guys are living in Britain at the exact same time that apparently everyone is doubting their faith. Now, how do those two things come together? And this book that I was given, Crisis of Doubt by Timothy Larson, basically goes through profile after profile of free-thinking atheists who doubted their faith, walked away from God, became these atheist, secularist lecturers, and then they came back to Christianity. And he goes, these people's stories are valid. And yet you never ever hear or see anything about them. The history books only tell you the one side. They tell you that every clever thinking person began to doubt Christianity's truth. and They never tell you that many of these clever thinking people came back and became Christians. I have found people that were gonna feature and revive thoughts through this book. I am just so fascinated by it. And one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by this is because I've never heard this, but this is such an important history because we have, many of us have children or friends or neighbors who doubt the faith who want to be smart, but they don't see smartness as corollary with Christianity. And this gives you a roadmap on how to talk to them. These are the arguments that convinced very smart people that Christianity was true. And it's just things like that, that you just don't see, that we should be teaching to our people that are just not out there anymore. And so, okay, I feel like we've covered big time now. What are the things not to do? We don't, we, we, For starters, don't skip it completely. Don't use it just to prove your theological points and be like, aha, this is, you know, uh, the Presbyterian church was all right all along. They were the only good guys. Or what is there? Are certain people who are like, only the certain Baptist groups that were hidden throughout history were Christians or in the Westlands, whoever it is. We're not using church history to prove our theological yeah, We're not
0: weaponizing church we're history.
1: Not, yeah. Church history is not ammunition for our theological guns. Uh, we're not just teaching theology, making it just another long lecture of historical theology. We're actually telling the stories. Um we're not doing new history where we're rewriting everything and we're, we're staying away from that. So then what are some things we need to do when we do teach church history? Whether you're doing a Sunday school and you're bringing it in there, whether it's something from the pulpit, you're mentioning a story that is related to your topic. And we're not saying, you know, eisegete the passage. I'm saying you find a good corollary, use it. Um, you're, whatever situation, you're in church history class, you're a professor, whatever it is you're at, how can you bring this subject up to people in a way that will actually reach them, engage them, and hopefully... Uh, be something to do. Here's what I would start with. Start with, and it seems easy, obvious, start with stories. It's history and people relate to the stories of the people themselves.
0: Agreed. I think that uh, one of the things that is probably top tier we should be doing is reading a bunch of biographies because um, those, like I said, have been some of the most encouraging to me and I think it gives you just a huge appreciation um, for all the people who came before us and if you're not reading biographies, you're gonna feel very disconnected uh, from, from your own, I mean, your own faith tree, your own, what do you call that? Like a like a genealogy. Family of God. Yeah, the family of God. You're gonna feel very disconnected uh, from that. And if you are talking with fellow believers, it would be impossible not to be inspired um, by these, these people throughout history.
1: Yeah, in fact, I think two big things happen for you. For starters, you know, like Elise said, you suddenly feel connected. You don't feel alone. You may study theology books. You might be the the person who's listening right now is like, I know my theology really well. But oftentimes if you study theology really well, you realize there aren't that many Christians that thought exactly like you do. And you're going to feel alone and, think, and begin to think either you're a part of this elite upper class of Christians, there's only a few of you out there, or you're going to look around and go, well, where is the church that I'm reading about in the Bible that should be moving nations? And where is it? It's in church history. You learn about that church by reading the stories. And then you realize, I'm not alone. There's been a lot of Christians doing and having these thoughts that I've been having for 2,000 years, and they've gone on to change the world. And the number two thing that then happens is you become humble. You realize, I'm not doing nearly as much for the faith as many other wonderful Christians throughout history have done. And you also realize my theological persuasion, although maybe the most correct, most biblical, is not the only one there are others who are, you know, we're not talking about heretics, but we, there are other people who maybe think differently than I do, who've also done great things for the church, and you begin to realize it's okay to learn from these other groups to a degree, and and not saying that you change your theology, but I think it really does humble you to learn and realize that God has used a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, that God has used slaves, God has used kings, God has used pastors, God has used laymen, God has used, you know, businessmen, and God has used uh, teachers. God has used so many different people from so many different backgrounds and you are just one piece of this amazingly great puzzle and artwork that god has been doing for so so very long and you miss out on all of that when you don't teach the stories and don't let people get to see the doubts the fears the struggles the bad times the good times the successes the victories and all of it together when you just teach little snippets or you don't teach it at all you cut all of that away from the people who need those snapshots to grow
0: yeah We need heroes today. And I think if you don't have heroes of your own, you will be given heroes. um, And you probably don't wanna be given heroes by the world. So you should be coming up with these heroes on your own, looking, reading, and then you'll find favorite people throughout history. And you'll obviously, you know, your Hudson Taylors, your Charles Spurgeons, those people. But you'll find a bunch of people that you've never heard of before. And you're like, these people are the coolest people ever. And then you'll wanna go out and tell people, oh my goodness, do you know the story of so-and-so? it's amazing. Here, read this book or read this article or whatever. And I think it obviously, and it makes you an interesting person. So if you're looking for it to upgrade your personality, I think we're a little bit far into 2024. We're fine. It's fine. You can still do it, Um, but you become more interesting. You have conversations with people that are not just theology or the weather or traffic, or, you know, you're probably an interesting person. anyway. We listen to our shows. (laughs) But you become more interesting by expanding uh, your your reading rep- repertoire repertoire.
1: Yeah, and and you also get to do things like us, like criticize these people who write bad history. Exactly, everybody wants that. You can criticize so many many people. Parties we're having to turn down because people (laughs) want to hear us do that. It's it's an unbelievably large calendar. The other thing too, and the other the other thing I would suggest adding is so the first thing you should teach you this is primary is the stories you need to teach the stories of what people go through, and and I and I will say too, go for students if you're a youth pastor or youth director, or you're just working with younger people, they need this more than maybe any other group because they're going. many of them will go off to secular universities where they will be taught different versions of history that will shipwreck them if they don't have an anchor to help hold them down. Of course, the Bible and God are the real ultimate anchor, but there's nothing wrong with teaching them a good, solid foundation in history as well to help keep them from washing around the ways. I mean, there's a reason so many cults like the Mormons or so many other groups like Catholics do such an emphasis on histories because they know if they can get you to believe that, they can help keep you. And yet we often just go, uh, history is, Mar- is Martin Luther in 1517, and there's some Puritans that sailed the ocean blue. Anyway, and now we're here today, all right? And Or or we just teach the bad parts or something. I mean, so it's so disconnected. And then we wonder why people are struggling so much. They need that anchor. They need to know what has been going on in the church for 2,000 years. And if you don't think history is important to God, look at how much of the Old Testament is just history. Stephen, the martyr's speech, as he's getting ready to die in the book of Acts, he's giving a history lesson and reviewing Israel. I mean, how many times do we see Hebrews, that chapter 11 is just this big, long history retelling? I mean, history is important to God. God loves what his people have done throughout history and it didn't stop after the end of scriptures like god is still using them i know that what we have done since then is not canonized on the level of scripture but we haven't stopped doing great things through god's strength and people need to hear that and the number two thing is wisdom read the books and share the knowledge that you're learning so many of these people over the course of 2000 years have 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 written books or have preached sermons like we share revived thoughts that are wise and full of just deep thoughts that go so incredibly uh, further than we can ever, ever imagine. I am consistently, after five years of doing Revived Thoughts, almost, I am not yet at the end of going, wow, I didn't know that I can't, I've never thought of that passage that way. I've never really thought of it that way. I've never, it happens all the time. And when you only read stuff from the current era, when you only learn stuff from the last 10 to 20, 30, 40 years, of theology and stuff, you're narrowing your worldview and your window to this tiny group of people. You have 19 to 2,000 years worth of church history to read books, read sermons, and learn from. Go learn from it. There is so much stuff that you can gain from the wisdom of those who've come before. So if you're teaching church history, I would really primary on, at least as a starter, those two things, teach the stories of the people. Let the, if you're if your students or whoever's in the class or whoever's uh, in your, you know, whatever, don't learn anything else, let them learn the names of the famous people and let them learn some of their stories. And if you can, teach some of those wisdom, teach some of those quotes, teach some of those those thoughts that are higher level that will get them to engage, get them reading things that are outside their normal, comfortable level, And you would be surprised how much they can often rise to the occasion and how much even high schoolers, even young people can often learn from these great thinkers of the past and go, you know, I don't agree with all this, but there's some interesting stuff here, 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 and here. And I I think if you can do those two things, church history will become much more alive to people. And I, I really think that we have got to stop teaching church history as the old secondary, you dust it off because you need it for the degree, or stop teaching it as the lesser thing. Yes, obviously Christ-like biblical theology is extremely important and a part of the church. But we do also need to know our history and how we got here.
0: You know who has perfect not perfect, but Christ like theology? People of history. That's yeah. what that's what encourages them to go out and do things. Um but we're not obviously, you know, getting on to anybody. I feel like we're really passionate about this. So we're not we're not like yelling at anybody. Obviously you guys are great because like I said you listen to our shows. So it's really just an encouragement. Like we're so passionate about this because it's so important. And we want other people to go out and do this, and we want to encourage you um, to to see its importance, as I'm sure you already do. But we're just we're just adding a little bit of extra coal, just to get under that coal, like burning, like pushing you. <laughs> we're pushing setting you, you on
1: fire yeah. if you don't teach them about church history. That's a fire what poker. Happen. That's Watch what I'm out. thinking That's of. The yes. <laughs> um, look, I will say I I do wish I could show like. I I don't know how to say it. I wish I could show all the famous theologians that have big podcasts or the famous pastors around the world our inbox of people. We're we're not a big group. We're not tiny, but we're not a huge group. And yet we are regularly getting comments and messages and emails from people going, wow, that was encouragement. I can't believe how much I needed that sermon from 1,700 years ago today it doesn't make any sense it wouldn't make any sense if it weren't for the fact that it is something people need and they are deeply encouraged and god uses it in incredible ways the reason we're getting we're trying to get this message out there is because i want this to be something the church begins to grow in because i think it would really help a lot of us as people are going through hard times right now you know maybe the economy is not good they're looking and hearing rumors of wars around the world there there's illnesses coming and going you know who's lived through all of that the people of history they have lived through black plays they've lived through civil wars and the big world wars they they've lived through the great depression they've lived through these things and we can learn so much from learning their stories and it's deep encouragement for today and i just wish i could show so much of the big people out there in christianity look at this important subject your people are needing it they're dying for it and they don't even know that they need it and they don't even know that they don't have it it's something that i think the church today would be much much healthier if they had it And as times may, you know, they may get better. The next year might be the best year of everyone's lives. But if times continue to get harder, as things continue to get more of a fight for the faith, I think church history will be an anchor that many people will be able, who have it will continue to lean on. And many people who don't have it will continue to slip because it's not there. And it will just make it all the harder for them to stand when they think they're all alone. When in reality, they're just the tip of 2000 years of history. This is Troy and Elise, and you have been listening to Revive Thoughts and Martyrs and Missionaries.